Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Welcome to episode 111 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, welcome Anthony Roman, bass and vocals for the band Garden Variety. Garden Variety were in the middle of it all in the 90s, part of the ABC No Rio crowd on a prominent indie label, Gern Blaston, and were loved by many from the hardcore punk and indie scene. They aren't mentioned as much as other 90s bands, but they were one of the early ones to lay the groundwork. Garden Variety are insanely important today to understand the connections Emo had in the early 90s and how it evolved. Also, I'd like to mention I have a book coming out, Anthology of Emo, Volume 1, taking 10 episodes of the podcast into book form with rare photos and other images. If you are a fan of the podcast... You will 100% dig this. To find out more and order, go to anthologyofemo.com. This episode is sponsored by Mac Weldon. For the best basics a guy can get that actually last, go to macweldon.com. And if you want to get 20% off your order and support washedupemo.com, Use the code DEFENDEMO. Yes, you heard that right. DEFENDEMO for 20% off your order at MacWeldon.com. This is episode 111 of the Wash Up Email podcast with Anthony Roman from Garden Variety. Uh, Anthony Roman, thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, lifelong New Yorker. Yeah, I was born in uh, Valley Stream, which is kind of by the airport, um, first town past the Queens border, Long Island, South Shore, like four miles from JFK. My father worked there. so Oh, no way. What did he do there? Just like, uh, well, yeah, actually I had a good job. He was meet the uh, meet flights, you know, make sure everybody's baggage got where I had to go. But at a certain point, they moved him to take care of the Concord. So he would... Um, Meet a lot of celebrities. Yeah, so, you would. And uh, there's actually a funny story that we were, um, Garden Variety was playing with uh, Jawbreaker, actually, <laughs> uh, at Irving Plaza. And Bruce Springsteen came off the Concord. My father was a big Springsteen fan. So he went over to him and he's like, Bruce, Bruce, uh, you know, and he's like, my son's a musician. And Bruce's like, oh, yeah, where does your son play? And my father's like, he's playing tonight at Irving Plaza. And he's like, oh, man, your son's doing well. And it, had that been any other night, it would be ABC No Radio yeah, exactly. or, you know, the PWAC or something. <laughs> so it just so happened that we were playing Irving Plaza. So my father came home and he's like, the boss says you're doing good. <laughs> so I was like, 
That's a good one. Yeah, because we, we did a bunch of shows with them, and, and they were all, you know, big rooms. So Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I remember the, I was on a plane at JFK, and we turned, and the pilot said, hey, anyone that's lucky enough to be on the right side, look outside. Concord's passing us. And it was right before it was they stopped service. Right, it was right. cool. The pilot even knew. Yeah. <laughs> It was pretty amazing. I went on there. I never flew on it, but he used to take me. You know, when I was a kid, I would go on it and look at it and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was the Valley Stream's right by the airport. So the planes would fly really, really low. Like you'd be in your backyard talking to your friend and you'd be like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Kind of like know? being at Shea or City Field. Yeah. It's that close. But not yeah. that close. Yeah. Right. Well, it was closer. Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah. It was closer. It, yeah. So. But the, from there, was it uh, obviously you could see the city. You knew there was stuff going on yeah. music wise. What were some of those first things that connected to be like music's my thing well yeah because um basically my yeah my father wanted to move there because he wanted to be close to work I, they all lived in bedsty my father and my mother and uh my mother's brother my uncle so they all moved to valley stream together my uncle lived downstairs my uncle was a musician um his name was freddie toscano but they used to call him freddie frogs but anyway he got signed in the late 60s to Atlantic with a psychedelic band, Mr. Flood's Party, which has like a, you know, very rare, uh, but kind of critically acclaimed record um, that people like, you know, look for on eBay and stuff. And he, that record came out in like 1970 or something. So he was a musician. And in the late 70s, he kind of transformed out of the hippie psychedelic thing and got into punk and like rockabilly and, and stuff and started a band called the BMTs. And they used to play Max's Kansas City every Sunday. He used to hang out at the mud club. All the, this was all while I was living in my basement. So wow. he would come home and like kind of play me records. And, and he was friends with like a lot of like... Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it was good. Like Brian Setzer was his friend and, and uh, Mick Rock, the photographer. And, uh, you know, Wayne Kramer. All these people would come to my house too. So To hang. When I was like eight, nine, whatever, I saw... You know, I didn't really know the significance of it, but I was meeting musicians all the time. So right away I started playing. Wow. Yeah. And he... You know, he was like a big supporter of uh, any of the bands I was in, but also like he taught me like, he's like, oh, you should play bass because everybody plays guitar and you'll be in more bands if you play bass. And that's how I ended up playing bass was because, and he showed, would show me a little bit. His band would rehearse in the basement and, um, you know, then when my high school band started playing, we went down there. there yeah. Was, there was already equipment. So, you know, it was like. It already easy, had the feel. Yeah, it was ready. And Garden Ready did a ton of stuff down there. Yeah. So, so that. That uh, Valley Stream was kind of like, in addition to being close to the city, which was great, it was also like, um, you know, there was a lot going on in that house musically. So, you know, the people in the band, Joe and Rizzo, uh, gravitated towards that house, too. So they, everybody hung out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so was that, when did Garden Variety start for you? Was it high school or was it? It was right after. Right after. Um, and so I guess it was like, I'm not sure, 91 maybe. And then... We started playing, uh, me and Rizzo were, uh, Anthony Rizzo, he grew up around the corner from me, and he was a guitar player. We just kind of got into music together, because we were, you know, and we did the same thing. We were really into rockabilly when we were young, and then we got into whatever the LIR, New Wave stuff was, and he went metal. He had, a, like, a period where, I, I guess, <laughs> and, you know, musically, we weren't in sync, and then... Um, I had, I was, like, a very, very big Clash fan. I, I got, um, I had an older cousin who took me to like a record fair once when i was probably 12 or 13 and he was like you know let, let's go look at all and i bought two records that day i bought uh anarchy in the uk sex pistols and i bought london calling so the 45s wow I brought them home yeah and i was like got really into it 
And then uh, we were like, so yeah, Clash and the Jam and the Cure and all that, like the LIR stuff. But also, like, you couldn't help but the rock thing was so big on Long Island. So people listened to Floyd and so, you know, we heard all that too. And, and everybody had like their little periods where they were maybe into more. Uh, you know harder stuff and then, and then Rizzo got had like a metal period I didn't have a metal period so. but then <laughs> I, we quickly re, you know we came back like at the end of high school and musically we're back and like wanted to do the same thing and that was that was kind of the stuff that influenced Garden right we, we got together on that so. what kind of stuff because it was you kind of came from what I've read from indie rock not from hardcore yeah, right that's right not, neither one none of us all three I don't, you know I don't want to speak for everybody but um, I do know that none of us were ever into New York hardcore at all. We, we, you know, and I know a lot of my friends are, were part of that or came from it. And, uh, we found that it wasn't even something we were paying attention to. And, and when we did kind of come face to face with it, you know, it just seemed musically a little, again, for me, too much of an allegiance to metal, um, for me to get excited about. And also a little, you know, the whole youth crew thing was maybe like, Tough guys. Tough guys. A little thuggish, which, you know, we were like, maybe we thought we were more sensitive than that and stuff. And so the stuff that we got, like, but we did like, like harder music. So the, the transition for me was that, you know, cause I was really into the clash and it, my uncle had a friend and he said, um, Oh, what bands do you like? And I just named like whatever, you know, the clash and British bands that I was interested in. And he said, Oh, you should listen to the replacements. And I had seen a little stuff about them in magazines and, and then I went to uh, Slip Disc and Valley Stream and bought, you know, the record, uh, Tim and, and Pleased to Meet Me and those. And then got really, really, like, kind of obsessed with the replacements. And then from that, started to find out, well, well there's other things that connect to this. Um, because they're a good bridge. Because yeah. they're, they're a little bit, you know, they're, they're not quite punk and they're not quite, you know, indie. Like, they have their kind of, like, there's a bit of a... A bit of everything in their music, which I think so. It's easy for people to get into them, and they're really melodic. But then I found out about like Husker Du and and uh, you know the stuff that was on SST and the stuff that was on Homestead and and just how were you finding out about that? Was that reading, cousins and reading? No, no. no. What there were, the guy that my uncle's friend that like told me about the replacements. You know, then he was gone. I didn't see him run up for another year or two. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. So, so then you're just on your way, you know, like, and it was zines. Yeah. Cause I would go to slip disc and Valley stream, um, which was like a, a really, really good record store that this is instant. Like my uncle owned a clothing store, the same uncle on Rockaway Avenue and Valley stream. And then he, it closed cause he was getting really back into music. And then the guy that took it over made a record store. And wow. This record store slip disc was, is I'm sure a lot of the people that you will interview from or have interviewed from long Island, bought their records there it had a heavy duty punk rock section so i would go there and i could buy like suburban voice or uh there was another one the village noise and um there was a really small one called my opinion that was like covering um you know a lot of there would be hardcore stuff in it but there was always things that i could connect from so i would read and you know you just read a review and so it'd be like a husker too for fans of the and you're you know, like done placements and then you just buy it and as a matter of fact, the guy that owned the record store, he wore a Husker Du shirt almost every day. And, and he was like, <laughs> you should get this. And, and uh, I bought an arcade. Me and Rizzo were like on our bikes. And we, we went to the pizza place. We opened it up. We're like, there's a double gate, you know, double album. We went home and listened to it for like hours. It's just, I, I was thinking so much about them because Grant Hart died the yes. other day. So um, they were a huge influence on us because also they, you know, we kind of like the speed of it too. Like it had some, 
the punk aggression, but it was really melodic and they were a trio. So they were like, I would say our biggest, you know, the, them. And then, you know, Dinosaur Jr. was big. Buffalo Tom was very big. All like the early, uh, the first two records by them were, we were really into. And, um, Eric from Christie Front Drive had told me to listen to Buffalo Tom because I asked him what, what I was so young. This was, I was just moved to New York. A friend yeah. introduced me. I was super nervous and I was just like, what did you listen to when you made, you know, and he was like, Buffalo Tom. Yeah. And so I went and listened to Buffalo <laughs> Tom and I didn't like it at the time, but I like it now, yeah. but I can see the pieces in it. Yeah. I mean, Buffalo Tom's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, and I, you know, I've met Bill Janovitz a few times and I find that, um, and you know, he, he's from Long Island too. He's from further East. Um, they were like definitely excited by the same things, right? You know, Husker and the replacements and stuff. But by the time they got popular, I think they got had their sound had softened quite a bit and they became more of a different thing. But their first record, which Jay Maskus produced, is like just a really energetic and noisy record, but it's super melodic because I think he was he's so rooted in, in uh or you know, he's a bit older, so it's like more REM and, and Smiths and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So you have that kind of like this punk aggression with this uh, real melodic sensibility. But I think when they got pop, people kind of maybe don't listen to the early records because those are not the ones that became popular. But the, the first one on SST is a phenomenal record. The second one's really good. And the third one is great too, but it's definitely softer. Yeah. But there's other, like, you know, Ted Leo's really into Buffalo. There, there's people that I've talked to because I didn't think that they crossed over with the with that with the crew I met, you know, later on at ABC and Rio and stuff, but there's more fans of theirs than I than I realized. Yeah, so, you know, quite an excellent band. Yeah, that so. was the what got me into a lot of that stuff. I was at I was out. To, it was in college, and I was just into punk and hardcore. And then this kid down the hall, someone just told me he's like, you know, there's a guy down the hall that knows all those bands, you know, because they're a lot of you know frat yeah. and kid. Yeah. You know, they're like, he's like, I was like, really? There's a kid down there. It's like, yeah, he says his brothers in some band you know and i was like what band and he was like chisel his oh, brother yeah. was john wow. dugan from chisel oh, yeah, yeah, john, sure. so i was like oh yeah hi we're friends now we're best friends right. uh, friends right. for 25 oh, years nice. or whatever yeah. but like the and then he was like all right here's this yeah and his brother was you know giving yeah, yeah. mike those and then it was like this it was cool because with the older we were learning about that older stuff but it took that chain instead of yeah. me searching on right. the internet it took that like little trail and i kind of like that yeah right well you know this is you're all pre-internet is all you know there's nowhere to search right so you're just kind of uh if someone tells you something or you read about it in a fancy that's really that's really it and um it was so we were like the bands that we were into um i would say by 91 92 either had broken up husker do replacements um, things, things of that nature, and then or softened mm-hmm. to the point where we weren't connecting to it anymore because we were still young and wanted more aggression. So, uh, Lemonheads were really into, but they again, their first three records are very, very like good punk records, and then they got kind of you know things slowed down a bit. The fourth record's quite good actually too, Lovey. Um, so you know, a lot of those bands had Soul Psalms, another band that we were really into because their first you know again people don't realize it because they're used to runaway train or whatever they're google dolls was. the same thing well, like a punk band. yeah but i know you know they weren't as <laughs> and on metal blade they were they were on, i think i saw that once but they didn't you know connect in the same way yeah um for me and so the stuff had started to mellow a bit and i think that at around that same time 
um, the DC thing it was going in the opposite direction. Like it was coming out of its hardcore thing and they were trying to, they were, they were mellowing from a different place and we really got excited about that. And that was like, you know, Fugazi and Jawbox and, and then bands around the country that were taken from that, um, that style was, became a big influence on us. And so those two were probably more, but those two things were a big part of what you guys were thinking of for the sound or just the sound was, if I had to figure out a way to describe it, I would say, you know, the, the eighties indie stuff, which, you know, the twin tone and SST and all homestead squirrel bait, things like that mixed with the DC thing post, you know, revolution summer. Yeah. Yeah. And then for you guys, do you mention ABC and Rio? And I thought that was like, that was like a traditional punk, you know, hardcore. How did you guys get connected why would do those things connect there versus other places? Uh, well, I went, there was, um, in my school, there was a band, uh, a hardcore band. It's this guy, Eric Svirta, who's now in a band called too many voices, but he's, uh, he was in a lot of bands in, in the Long Island scene, but his first band was called Mark my words, which was kind of a, more of a straight up New York hardcore kind of thing. And I w- didn't know much about their music, but he was one of those people that was starting to like, get into you know uh more we were, we were meeting somewhere yeah so anyway he was playing abc in rio and he's like oh you should come and i went with a, another friend of mine from my school uh who was also a new york hardcore guy and he went and i went to abc in rio and i was like i met a few people just that first day um that were kind of like i was like oh this is interesting you know these people have a different it's not as it this isn't like a tough guy place this is a different kind of place and uh you know, someone gave me like a Jersey beat and someone I was reading, you know, I'm taking on the way home reading, oh, I like this. And then not that long after we played at Queens college, uh, garden Bay, you know, one of our, maybe our second show or something. Yeah. I think it was our second show. I had a friend from Queens college who was in a band called animal crackers, which, um, I think, yeah, Ted was a singer of, and, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 this is, and he came to the show and he brought these other guys from the band citizens arrest and, and uh, this other guy, Charlie Adamek, who I had a lot to do with the booking at ABC. And they were at the show, and they saw us play, and they were like, oh, we really like you guys. And, you know, we're, we we all play and book shows at ABC No Rio. And we were, like, hung out for, like, the night, you know, had a great time. And then we got a call, like, do you want to play ABC No Rio with Screeching Weasel? And we were like, yeah, of course. You know, we knew who they were and stuff. Wow. And um, that, then I met, that show was crowded, obviously, because they were big. And I met a lot of people that day that like I'm still friends with. Really? Know? Yeah. It's uh, funny how that you know that one phone call, the one show, turned yeah. like that's really great. Yeah, because that I met John Hiltz, um, who's a drummer from Born Against, and uh, he's you know someone I was with two weeks ago on Fire Island, and uh, you know Charles Maggio, who uh, started Grand Blanston Records and was a singer at Rorschach. Um, countless people, you know that that I'm remain friends with all the members that Nick from Rorschach. There's a lot of people that I met right in that. And then I started going there, you know, often to, to kind of see what was going on. And eventually that led to, um, we played there a lot. We saw so many, we would just go there. You know, what other shows call, were you seeing there? Yeah. Just like, I remember the one that everybody called me like, you got to see this band that's playing today. And we went in and, and it was Hoover. And wow. uh, it was like, that's still one of the best shows I ever saw. You know, they were just, how come? I don't know. I don't know what they did. Like they just had this, like, uh, obviously it was very, that Fugazi thing, but it was just in this small place. I didn't know anything about them. There was an excitement to it. Everybody was, they had such a kind of like, uh, 
there was a, a bit of a craze, uh, you know, about them in that period. And they like, just, I think they knew it and they like delivered, you know, it was just, I liked that. Know. I've talked about it before, but I love the, that unknown. You were told to go. You didn't know anything. I didn't. And I had no way to hear them. Yeah, there was you. So you're, you don't even know what they look like until Nothing. they go up on stage. Nothing. You could have been standing next to them the whole time. Uh, yeah. But then I loved that. Yeah, feeling, and I don't have that anymore. And I try to, right? Well, but you, then you, I'm not going to get myself looked, to go to a show either if I don't listen just, to right. it. Right? You would have just looked it up the second somebody <laughs> called, right? I mean, that's understand anybody would. But that was the thing, you know. That was, um, you know, that was part of what you you were relying on the you know the opinions of people that you know you trusted and you, you, that were in in the world that you were in. Like this is good, you know. It didn't always work out. Sometimes yeah. people tell you to see something, you'd be like, "Oh, that's that doesn't do anything for me." And Hoover was one of those bands that like the records never because we ended up playing with them and and uh, you know a few times and, and getting to know them a little bit. The records never delivered on what. Which was a big problem, and one of the problems of that period is that um, recording was, for a lot of people, was dealt with in such a haphazard, inexpensive way that it was difficult to make records that I think uh, delivered on what people you were needed money of doing. Yeah, and I think the records that stand out uh, from that period, you know, maybe a little more money. It's not it's not a cross board rule, but like some of the ones in my head, I'm like, well, that record sounds great. That record sounds great. I think you know, either there was luck or that you know, a bit of money was spent. Yeah. And then, how did you get into? How did you? Obviously, the guy from Gurn was at that one of that shows. You kept in touch with him. Yeah, I mean, it's, did that turn into you guys working with them? Well, I don't or? even. Yeah, I don't even know if there was Gurn at that point. Um, ninety one, ninety two, maybe it was just starting, and then. Well, we would play with Native Nod. We would play with Merrill. We would play with a lot of the bands that he was affiliated with. Mm-hmm. And then we were doing a show in um, the the bass player from Native Nod used to throw shows in his. That was another thing in Jersey. There was like uh, this guy John Hiltz would throw shows in his basement. They're kind of legendary. There was like you know just uh, the biggest bands would come and play there. We used to play there a lot. We played there with Avail. We played with there with Unwound. We played there with um, just you know like whoever was coming through. You know. A lot of times, because we, we were a local band that was a little more melodic or something, mm-hmm. we would get called. And then, and then there was this other uh, Dave Lerner, who was uh, the bass player for Native Nod. He would throw shows, and he had this house that I think was bought from Angela Lansbury, so she had like a theater in the basement. Wow! And he would put on shows there, and we played there with this band Nuisance that was on Lookout Records, and Charles was there, and he kind of walked over and said, "Do you want to do a, you know a record on?" Unger Blanston, because we had put a seven inch out before that, and then yeah, so then that was that, the one with was that no, that was later. Yeah, it was with the, the first seven Mintone. inch was Hedge. Yeah, oh, it was Mintone. Hedge, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, again, that was like we played at a. Uh, it was like one of those things. It was everything was like you play a show, and then someone would walk over to you and be like, "Do you want to play a show here?" You know, so we played a show at, Car- at Carol's place with. Um, I think Super Touch, we, who were called Crash Wagon at the time, or so they went through this little period where they were not Super Touch. And we played at that show, and I met Norm at that show. Norm that from was Texas, like our third show. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, he walked over and introduced himself. We've stayed friends since then. And then the other person that I met that day was Artie Shepard, who's in Mind of a Matter, yep. and owns uh, St. Vitus, which I still have never gone to, and you know I feel terrible about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just had him on a few weeks ago. You did? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was a big, you know, well, we'll talk about that after. Um, <laughs> he was a, such a huge supporter of Garden Variety. And, and really? The, 
but yeah, let me stay on, on track here. Yeah. So we played Carol's Place. I met Norm. I met Artie. And I met this guy, Vinny Cigara, who owned that label, Mintone. And he was like, do you want to do a seven inch? And we were only like, this is our third show. We don't, wow. we don't really have. We don't, yeah, okay, we'll do it. You know, We went down to D.C. and did it with Donzi and Tara, who did all the Fugazi records and stuff. Wow. And we were, what stuff were you guys doing at the time? Was it odd jobs? Was it staying at home? Like, what um, other, I mean... Well, you were like, what were the aspirations at that point? None. Just play the next Just show. Just play the next show. Yeah, we didn't have apps, uh, you know, any like goals or ambition. I mean, we, we had ambition. The ambition was like to be as good as we could and, and play to as many people as possible. But we weren't thinking about becoming popular or famous. Um, it wasn't like you were working on merch designs after after the show. <laughs> <laughs> no. We, you know, we, um, I think that we, you know, maybe that you start to get where maybe start to see how popular some, some of the bands you play with are like, Oh, it'd be awesome to play CBs or you know, you don't, you kind of don't go beyond that. Yeah. It's not like, um, you don't expect much because you're not doing anything that is commercially viable. You know, I mean, this is right when Nirvana hit. So, but we didn't connect to that. We didn't feel as much as people like, well, it's crazy. The, you know, the year punk broke and stuff. We didn't have anything. That was not where our heads were. We were not into like grunge and we weren't into any of the bands that came out of, the wake of that at all um as was it trying fact, to avoid it too we hated most of it you know i mean and I, you know i i can as as i'm older i could realize that some of those bands had you know incredible talent and were interested but they were not what we were concerned with at all you know i was like well it's good you know we knew Nevermind was good but it wasn't what were you more worried about then <laughs> <laughs> we were worried about what was going on in in our little world of you know very few people um we were we were interested in in uh you know the stuff that the stuff that came out of san diego and the stuff that came out of dc and the stuff that was coming out you know the jawbreaker and things like that that's where we just got there was so much to kind of sink your teeth into at that point that there was we didn't need to be concerned with the mainstream yeah and then for the do you, you remember the first time you heard the word emo I don't remember the first time, but I always, I mean, I think to me it was like Rites of Spring and Revolution Summer, all the 85 DC kind of stuff. That's what I thought emo was. And then it got, we didn't get, I don't remember getting called emo when we were playing much in the beginning. And then, you know, it started to become a broader term, but um, really I just think of, you know, maybe I think of like there was bands after that were like on um, Kent McClard's label, you know, like uh that were in that magazine, you know, the fanzine heart attack and yeah. the abolition records. And so we would play with some of those bands, like portraits of past and stuff like that. Maybe they were emo. I don't know, but we didn't, we were friendly with those people. We didn't, we didn't, um, I kind of thought of it as like, just like very, uh, rights of spring. That was like really what it, I didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't, I would never describe any of the bands we've discussed so far in that way. Yeah. It's the, I mean the word itself, how it, morphs and sort of yes people have this interpretation of it or it moves especially i mean i'll say christy front drive again i mean i feel like they just were doing their thing and it just happened to be either a label they were associated with a tour or something connected them to it but then they got remembered and i feel like for garden variety whenever i when i was doing my research i wasn't around then i was still figuring out um music it was one of the bands that got listed yeah i mean i would it would make sense that we would be lumped in wherever they were because 
Well, not even Christy Front Drive, but just that. No, whole, I mean, like, but ABC them, Norio, you know, just, whole thing. just saying that, like, we would go to, you know, Colorado and we would play with them. We would stay with them. We, yeah. You know, we would go to Kansas City and we would play and stay with Boys Life. That Those were the people we were we were friends with, or at least, um, you know, connected to. And, and Boys Life we were quite friendly with. But Which I meant, like, that community part. Yeah, but none of us ever said, like, emo to each other or anything, you know. But we we were coming from the same place definitely. yeah yeah that's what I, I guess that's what i'm getting at where there was a community to it yeah. and some people say like how why are those bands connected and i just i mean they like you said you would go to colorado and you'd hang with eric or yeah. you go to kansas city yeah. and that's where you that's what you did yeah. you went to texas yeah. well there's these these bands that you would play with or what and it we went it to was, texas we stayed in at the drive-ins garage and, uh, <laughs> no you know they were telling us about their you know their their aspirations and their and what they're going to do and you know obviously they got very big but you know again I I don't I don't even cons- I guess they would be considered emo but that's not the like, way po- I look more at like post hardcore yeah, to me that's what, how but, I would label them but I guess the even aside from labeling that the community part of it that I think like you said you were at the show you met these three people your friends for life yeah you've were in this town that's who you met with I think it's timing. And it's, but you're coming from the same place. Yeah. And that's when sometimes when I explain to people what that time was, yeah. you were all coming from the same place playing different things. Yes. I mean, I think that the, um, I've never experienced anything like, you know, having, having them played in other bands after. I've never experienced anything like that, period, because uh, the community and, and the, 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 how open people were to, uh, accepting you just because you were um, in a similar world to them, you, you know, had a similar aesthetic or were influenced by similar things. And, and the one example I remember is that we went out to California, and for some reason, Lance Hahn uh, of J Church, and you know, and that's he he introduced me to Jawbreaker people and stuff. He just like let us stay at his apartment for a week. We were in the mission for a week. Like we didn't know him or anything. He, no way. You know, and, and his roommate was Lolly Donovan. She had a column at MRR, and and then you know we would go to. Abolition Record uh, uh, Epicenter, and uh, we were, you know, you would just walk down Valencia and and in the mission and meet everybody, and it was just everybody was friends. You go out to the kilowatt for drink, like, and we didn't know any of them four days earlier. You and know? then you, when you left, you felt your you like saying goodbye to your your cousins or your yeah. family or something, and and um, I think that was that happened a lot, and that happened in in, in several cities that we were. Uh, you know, lucky enough to be embraced in. So, and and that'll never. That's not going to happen again. You know, that's that's not going to happen again because one, you know, you age out of it. But two, it's um, you know, again, it, it with technology the way it is, it's just you don't have that kind of. I don't think you connect in that way. It's a different yeah. way of connecting. Now. I joke about being washed up, but one day I realized my sock and underwear drawer was full of my basics. My mom had bought me. It was time to step it up and grow up. Pretty much because I didn't want to think about it again. Mac Weldon was the mom I always needed, yet didn't nag me about my messy bathroom. Easy ordering returns and long lasting really spoke to me. They're also supportive of the podcast and my messy bathroom. If you want to try their line of underwear, search socks and basics with a guarantee you'll dig it or you can return it for free. Right now, Watch Up Emo listeners can get 20% off your order with the code DEFENDEMO at MacWeldon.com. All one word, DEFENDEMO. You're supporting the show by doing this and stepping it up to be on our way to both being washed up. 
Yes. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I have no idea what, what someone who's 20 now is, is doing to, to meet people and what, is, what they're doing musically and stuff. I just know what I went through. And I know that that's, that can't be... Um, Do you think it weeds out people? What? <laughs> it went, I never... Any of the bands I had in college and high school, I never actually made a CD or vinyl. I never had enough money. Right. So we were in bands, we played shows, yeah. but never made something. Yeah. And I think if I was like, we'd have a band camp and songs yeah. up and oh, of course. we'd record a practice at least. I mean, I've never, you know, one, we never made our own record. We never, um, we never did anything like that. We, we, we did come up in, in the way of like, we're going to wait till someone, and this is probably not the best way to think of, of yourself, but we really believe in waiting till someone of some merit wanted to put it out you know that was like that was kind of what, and like, put something behind it yeah we're like we're gonna wait till we get an offer to put a record out which is on a label with people that we think are you know like-minded mm-hmm. don't have to be musically similar but just you know in, in a similar mind frame as us and and could yeah back it a little bit um and that's that was great because we were offered things quickly so it was nice but we were we worked very hard in like getting shows and practicing and like we were you know we, we weren't like laying around and waiting for that's the thing too you put something up on the internet you're like waiting for somebody to kind of find it you know it's a this is a different like you're kind of this is like you're driving into like you know here we are and you have a box of records yeah here we yeah. like see us you know which i think i mean you know be interesting to think about what would have happened if you did have all the technology and who could who would you have met and it's fun to think of those both ways yeah yeah i mean i i like um the the memories I have of that period are, are you know, you, you forget all the bad stuff. So that's yeah. like, oh, it was all nice, you know, it was, it was good, Met nice people. Yeah. Uh, and then f- ABC No Rio shows, what was sort of the, I mean, was it, did you feel it progressing? Did you feel the band was continuing to meet more people, shows getting bigger? Yeah, shows got bigger, met more people, um, got like really, like, you know, uh, started to go on tour. That was the thing. Once we had the Grand Blanson record, we felt like we could go on tour because we had an album. And then we uh, went on our first tour, which was pretty amazing because who was know, that Rizzo with? Booked it. It was with all different people, but like uh, you know, it was like I was saying before. A week was with uh, Jay Church and on the West Coast, and then but we did like a bunch of shows with Unwound, and we did a week with Angel Hair, uh, and part of that week was like. With Clickatatic Itawi and and uh, you know uh, Antioch Arrow and we just got to it was just pretty like wow. we got to meet everybody and, and play with everybody and, and what was uh, what was like seeing those bands I never got to see either of they those. were all great yeah they're all as good as people say they are I you know some of those bands like I had a really long talk with this friend Zach Lipes who writes for. Um, noisy and and he's like you know he's definitely he's a little younger so he's like really loves that period of music but didn't see i think he grew I think up i haven't tweeted at each other before i know yeah, that name. Yeah. yeah he grew up somewhere you know western massachusetts where knowing you know the bands didn't come so and we talked and i says you know the thing that i remember about those bands is that they were every bit as good or better than people say you know like heroin was as good as you could be you know at, at what they were doing they were mm-hmm. just mind-blowing and angel hair was incredible and unwound in the, in that early period they were they were a little more hit or miss they could be get a little sloppy and so but when they were on they were like one of the greatest bands you could ever see and and uh again the shows had um 
I guess because they were under the you know somewhat under the radar, and that, that mystery you're talking about, the shows had uh, more excitement to them because you were with this community of people that were all. It was more like an event. I think Chris talks about in an interview, which was what got me excited, that even shows that he liked the bands better that were like maybe at proper clubs or something, the ones that weren't, even if the bands weren't as good, were more exciting because you felt like you were part of something. Yeah. I felt like, you know, we played in the back of a a truck with with angel hair. Like, it was like, these are things that you're going to remember forever. I remember the Tang record store was us, them, Click Attack, and uh, Antioch Arrow. And just like, they were just like incredible. You felt like there was this whole movement around you that, of like-minded people that you were, you know, spent your life trying to get away from there. You know, you're all, you're all together. Yeah. It was really, really nice. And, and, uh, when things went well for you musically too, when you had like a good show and it connected, it was really, really great. So, but the shows were always fun before and after too. It wasn't just, it wasn't just when you played, it was like, there was just something going on that you were like, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't anything to scroll through and, and well, look no one's at. looking at their phone while you're talking to them. <laughs> yeah. You know. I, that's what I love. Some of the photos I've seen from just shows. I love everyone's face yeah. just staring. And I like, you know, our brains are wired now differently with technology yeah. and those things, but it's, uh, and sure, I could have left, you know, if 25 to Life came on, I'm walking outside. You know, I'm not going to stay for that. So, yes, that happened. It wasn't like I was there attentive. But no. when you when the music was playing, there wasn't anything else. If you were there and you wanted to be and you were around people of like-mindedness, that's what I loved about it. It's like someone just says, I'm into Fugazi. We're best friends. We're friends, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and you know, outside, you know, you'd walk out on a lot of things. Or like, I'll, say, I'll wait till the other band. and outside was its own thing yeah there was other people yeah. chilling out there anyway <laughs> had the same taste as you they all avoid- fucking hated they were avoiding the same band as you and, and you were friends with them because of it oh god when are they gonna be done you know it, it was yeah i really like i mean I, when i think of abc no rio i think and and cb's those two places in my memory i think of outside as much as i think of the inside you, know, mm-hmm. you were always outside talking and, yeah and meeting people and and kind of you know hearing about bands or connecting and and uh it's just, yeah, I remember one time I was standing in front of Seabees, and I think I was, Seaweed was supposed to play. My friend walked down the street. I wasn't supposed to meet him, and I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm coming from the movie theater. I just saw the greatest movie of all time. And I was like, what movie? And he's like, Dazed and Confused. And I was like, <laughs> I went to see it You know, a week later. I was like, that movie was incredible. But like, there was no, you didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Like, you were like, I've, yeah. my friend told me to go see he it. He's like, the uh, guy that made Slacker. I was like, oh, all right. All yeah, right see cool. you later, you know. But it stuck in your head. It stuck in my head. I went to see it, and I was like, "This is the greatest movie." And you know, maybe I, next time I ran into him, you were right. That was great. You know, and text him. Yeah, you know, Facebook message, email. Yeah, you gotta wait shit. to see him. You gotta wait. So. Uh, what other parts about New York? You've been here your whole life, and yeah. I think to see. I remember the reason I bring this up is I had a friend come in from out of town. We were going record shopping, and I stupidly. Um, told us to go to the village because i just instantly think oh yeah. 8th street or Records, i mean yeah. thompson's there's a few over there still yeah. but back then our our little um scene or whatever was you would just kind of go to st mark's on a you know during the week or whatever and buy kim's and stuff like that and everybody would kind of appear there that you knew and you would just like hang out there all day that that was a big like what i would do when i was in garden variety and then there was another store before that was reconstruction records which i don't know if might be before your time. I don't I think like I remember that one. Street. That was tr- like the ABC No Rio 
people owned it. It was a collective or something that like it was everybody shared keys and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Bands used to play there and stuff, and you could go there and hang out. So it's like you could kind of like go to the East Village and just kill your afternoon running into everybody you knew. Yeah, you know? and so yeah, obviously that's gone. You don't you don't see people, but again, you know, you're not at an age where that is um, as practical anyway. So it doesn't it doesn't bother me that. I don't know where people, I don't know where these people go now, you know, and, and do that. It didn't, when things moved to Brooklyn, that didn't really bother me because I ended up in a band with Radio 4. We had a Brooklyn identity. So that like, when did Radio 4 start? That was in, uh, maybe 99. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I ended up in that whole thing and, and that had its own merits and, and but I moved to the city in 2000. Yeah. And I, that was a, the New York thing was happening. Yeah. So, so, but prior to that in like 94, 95, 96, yeah, that was, that, that thing was just like, there was no Brooklyn. It was all like downtown. You yeah. Know, just, and you would just kind of walk around and see and everybody, maybe, maybe see everybody and wait for a show to start or something. Yeah. So, like you, if a show was eight, you go in at like two, yeah. Know, like, <laughs> hang out all day. Yeah. Stuff, you know? Um, and it, it, yeah, it was nice. Again, it was nice. I remember running into like, um, just you know you would st mark's books was another everybody hung out near Mm -hmm. there because it was a diner round the clock diner i don't know if it's still there and everybody would eat in there and stuff and you just kind of go sit there and see everybody yeah yeah it was great i think that's still there actually probably not probably isn't there's no way it is (laughs) um but yeah so that was uh that period you know 93 was i think when the gurn blanson record came out and then we started touring and then we were touring a lot. We would come home and play city shows and stuff, but the rooms were getting bigger. We could like, you know, we would do a CBs or, uh, we were, we were doing clubs. We started playing at night, you know, we were able mm-hmm. to get out of the rec centers and, and stuff and play brownies and places like that. We were playing quite often. So we had a city identity, I think. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. And then when t- you guys ended 96, 96. Yeah. So then there was a little, tr- a little time in between, Radio 4 starting up. Yeah. What were you doing then, or what were things happening at that well, time? Well, I was very upset about um, the the state of music, because after, nine, you know, things started to get, around the end of Garden Variety, things started to get into, they moved into a more, um, this was kind of like a post-slint thing. Things were like, you know, Rodan was a big band, and June of 44, and this, and like, there was things like this, almost like, things were getting very quiet and 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 uh drawn out and uh um too expand like i didn't I, karate I, yeah all people that are very nice and, and yeah friends but, but like, that's it, what was it going moved on into a direction that i was not interested in so i felt like that we had now moved so far from punk that we're now like i don't, I don't this isn't for me it doesn't have any physicality to it, it doesn't have any like kind of uh, energy or aggression so it's just so and and some of the people in garden variety were getting influenced by those things too and i was just like i don't really want to do that and i don't feel like we're good at it like that's knowing what you're good at is that's something that you realize like much much later but it's like um i think my gut was like this isn't what we're good at. we're good at like the kind of husker do jawbreaker you know three minutes we're in and out like melodic maybe have a hook a bit of dissonance you know that's what we really really connected with and did our best work when I look back at it. When we started to get into like six, seven minute songs, I don't, I don't think that was our, our strength, you know? And, uh, I think the second record we had trouble writing it and trouble, uh, figuring out. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, email me or 
talk to me and say that that record is the, not going to skill levels the the, re- the one it's mm-hmm. not the one for me you know um so at that time i had gotten bored of like i guess where indie rock had gone and then the other things like that we like you know maybe super chunk and stuff on matador there was also like this whole like kind of like pavement and um it's almost like which also again you know they're great but we don't we don't really care about anything you know that that was like the vibe of that kind of stuff like we're just kind of cool we're cool and we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're lazy and we're slackers it was like that post slacker thing and none of that that w- didn't musically i didn't want to be part of that either and that was very big that was really really big sebado things like that like almost like stoner kind of like it, it was just like uh it wasn't for anything i liked so in between i started playing with my uncle a little bit doing a rockabilly thing with him oh cool yeah and uh and rizzo came and did that and then we would play these shows and like he was somewhat known in, in that world and people come and they would dance and they would sing and it was like, oh, everybody's having fun. This is interesting. And that led me to like the, the idea of Radio 4 because I was like, you know what? We could do something that's like kind of upbeat and, and has some danceable rhythms to it, but still has punk energy and punk influence. And, and that was, and you know, I wasn't the only person thinking that. because What other whole, bands were going on at that time when you were thinking that up? What was, what other... Well, that was an interesting time because as we, Radio 4 started to play, I would get like, uh, you know, call like, oh, you should go see this band. And, and uh, I would go to Mercury Lounge or something and see them. It would be Interpol. Or, oh, you should go to ABC. There's a great band today. And, and it was The Rapture. Wow. And, uh, you know, all these things were happening um, at, at the same time. And, and all those people, I didn't know Luke and, and the people in The Rapture from, but they were on Gravity. I knew they were connected to it. Ah. And the people in Interpol, the drummer I knew from the from the punk days with Garden Variety. I had met him uh, when we were on tour. So it was people that I knew, and Liars were another band. Their mm-hmm. rhythm section was in Opium Taylor, who I had hung out with in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, every time we went through. So it was people that were like getting bored also with it. And yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I yeah. never thought about that. Yeah, it definitely came. You know, there was a lot of people um, that were in that second, that wave, that New York wave, that had direct uh, ties to that to that movement mm-hmm. um, and had said indie rock got so boring because indie indie rock got indie and emo and all it got it just got like not it wasn't fun and it wasn't yeah. interesting and it was being dissected and it was being uh, you know just it wasn't a night out anymore you know and I got into music punk and stuff because it was exciting and fun and 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 had energy to it. I didn't get into it because like it was like you started to feel like you're doing a crossword puzzle when you're yeah. watching some of these bands. So it's funny you mentioned the liars. The friend started working at Mercury Lounge and said you got to come see this band. Yeah. Um, and I was like, all right, yeah, I'll come if you're telling me to come and show up. I don't know anything. I haven't heard anything. It was uh, liars and then um, the yeah yeah yes yeah. At Mercury Lounge. Right. And I was like, well, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was at that, I never thought about it, but maybe I was bored in my head, but I didn't know. You but were. that way felt different instantly. Yeah. And that, that early period of that scene had the same feelings for me that the, the Garden Bright stuff did. And I, I actually, I was working at Brownies and uh, I went in. Was I that in the in, late 90s or was 2000s? Maybe 2000. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere in there. It was in that 2000, maybe. I walked in. My friend Harley was doing sound, he, and uh, liars were on. I was coming into work. I was like, what's with this? He's like, and I watched them. <laughs> and I, when they were done, I picked up the phone, and I called Charles. And I says, 
you got to put this band out. They're incredible. It's called Liars. And, and uh, he did. You know, their first record came out on Gurren Blanston. So it was, uh, I was having those moments yeah. that I had with, with Garn Variety. And, that must and have felt really good. It was. And then, that's why I look back and, you know, it's like the beginnings of, it's almost like every, everything's exciting to be, but there's a two, three year period of, of both those bands in that were, was just really fresh and fun and, and I, I really loved it. And then other bands see it and inspired yeah. and try it and there's a yeah. community around it, exactly. you'd hope. Exactly. Um, I think the difference is that the bands I was friends with in the Garden Ready days had no interest in becoming popular and the bands I was friends with in Radio 4 days, we all signed. We were all on major label. You know, we were all like going um, towards it. You know, that, that was the difference. And maybe it was because we had been around before and realized that these opportunities don't come, you know, all the time. So You were like, learning. Yeah, we were on Gurn and then we signed to Astroworks. Uh, Liars were on Gurn. They signed to Mute. Yeah, yeah, signed to Interscope. Everybody signed right away. Yeah. What were some other memories around that time of either shows or feeling like i just i remember i was at a label i was super new they knew i was young the they would a and r guys i'll be like what are you listening to yeah would you go last night yeah you could tell they didn't know yeah no that time was that was like an almost an you know a, a bit of an embarrassment rich i mean it's like it was kind of like there was somewhere to go every night and that had a different thing because it was like based around nightlife there was a club scene going on with it so it was like um you could go out to a club like Don Hills or, you know, they would, they would throw those tis was parties and mm-hmm. there was a place in the East village called uh, plant bar. Like you would just go out at night and everybody from the scene would be, would be around. And that was, whereas the garden ready period was almost more like daytime activity. Yeah. You know, this, this was like a night thing. It went to like four or 5 AM and, and, uh, but there was just shows. I mean, I felt like the, uh, when, when we went overseas in that period, we went overseas like and just played the greatest like we did a show and you know i was just saw the lcd guys and they it was their third show i think we did it was lcd the faint and radio four wow in a trans music Hall festival in in paris and it was like one of the greatest nights of my life you know that was, there was stuff that i did with that band that garden ready never got yeah. to do you know that that was really beautiful and uh cause, you know we did coachella we did reading we did leeds we did Benny Kasim, we did all the all the big festivals and those were great because you would see all your friends and and you would be able to check out new things say oh i heard about this, this is good you know and um but also just the, the community vibe was a big part of that too festivals are probably terrible to go to as a regular person but yeah. <laughs> they're really great to play <laughs> what the do you said the, the similarities between those two scenes and having that new york part but that new york sound that new york aesthetic went pretty far well it had it, it, it went had a lot of legs went, too it yeah, a lot it of legs. and lcd is not had a number one record last week you know i mean that's that's a that's a testament that's to, what i'm saying it had coming. this yeah. longevity where it's yeah. still referenced yeah it's still referenced and it's still happening you know lcd is it's right now so i think that that's that's beautiful and and i think that um and i, I the scene we were part of with garden Ready is it's more of a I guess it, it's it's not as easy to put your finger on on the on the popularity. Like I don't think any of the bands that were influenced by our world were had number one records. Maybe they did, but some you know there's this compilation. Charles is doing a uh, you know a, a, a double LP or triple LP of everything we put out is going to come out on Gurn Blanston, and he's reaching back to talk to some of the people like 
like Norm and, and Jimmy Eat World and, you know, the people that were influenced by Garden Variety. And a lot of those people went, that sound did get bigger. But I don't know if as a sound it was as unified as the New York thing and then able to, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's a big book about the New York scene now. Like, I don't know if our, if our thing, I think our thing was too underground to have like kind of, that's the problem. You know, that that's the, that's the, uh, you, I, I, some of the, like, people had aspirations bigger than us, and I, I think that was, they were, that was good. You know, that was good that they did. And, and, and what happened to Jawbreaker and stuff for signing and stuff was just so stupid. Like, th- those, those things are just, you know, you're just young and you're, 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 you're really so, this is so important to you. And, and I understand why it happens, but if you really, you know, I, Green Day's better off that they signed, right? Yeah. I, mean, they, they, I always say about Green Day, it's like, you know, people, they're, when they do any kind of political message or make a statement, like, it's like they're doing it to millions and millions of people, and we're doing it to 600 people, you know, like at a show. So it's like, yeah. they're actually really, that's a great thing that they got, you know, they got big and they, and they, and they kind of spread their message around the world. Now, musically, I don't know if they're as significant to me or, or anything, but I know they came from where I come from, and they Do you try. think that has to happen? Sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I try to be nice. But then sometimes I'm like, no, you need to have that, that shit show, that figuring out on your own. Like It can't just happen instantly where a song pops on the radio and all of a sudden you're touring the globe. Um, you think the growth thing is better? Yeah. I do, yeah. I, th- I think the bands I like very few of them were instantly huge um i think green day is a a a good trajectory you know you put out whatever three records on lookout you get just too big like they can't even handle handle the amount of records you're selling and you sign and then you kind of try and spread punk rock to the world i I think that's fine i think jimmy world did that same they did they had a big record and now they've able to sustain yeah that and they still put out records still tour they can play anywhere yeah yeah I don't know if they do. Or re- I don't know how big they are, but can they do like a Barclays or something? No, no, yeah. They'll do, they'll do the Terminal Five or right, something like right. that. Yeah, I, I think that there was there was a, the scene we were part of influenced certain people like that, and and who did take it to the next level. But a lot of people didn't. Like I think Texas was primed to take it to the next level. I don't know. I still don't even understand what happened. Why they broke up? Um, I think people just. Jawbreaker obviously collapsed under the under the scrutiny they were under and uh, the pressures. It, it just, I think we were so rooted in the, in the punk and hard hardcore uh, idealism and uh, you know the, to this a fault. Is what you're supposed to do to a fault, yeah. That that when things got a little bigger, you were. I remember we played one show that was 21 and over. We didn't even know. Literally, we didn't know. We just went and played, and we're like, oh, whatever, good show. And we got home, and then you know, a week later, there was like this kid, Chris Jensen, was passing around a fanzine at Radio uh, Garden Variety, a bunch of sellouts. You know, they're playing Twenty One Over shows. We didn't, we weren't trying to exclude anybody. We literally didn't even know. Yes, we didn't do the investigative work we should have done as proper punk rockers. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, we made a mistake there. You know, but it wasn't we weren't just like, we're going to play a 21 over show. Cause we want to get famous. You know, like we just didn't, we didn't realize it. And yeah, we were like crucified for it. Um, that'd have been a hell of a tweet storm, <laughs> yeah. but this is like, you got to pass out. You have to print these and pass them out to people about what bad people garden dry are. Like what, what? it's so absurd, but that's like kind of, you know what, what you were um, up against at that point. And 
several of our friends that tried to get, you know, were able enough to get a deal or were able enough to get offered a deal and took it. What happened? I can't, none of it worked. Like, Jawbox, it didn't work. Shout out to think it did. Like, did anybody yeah. really do well in that system? That that was from the kind of that initial wave. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't. It's hard. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. So for Radio 4, back to sort of that time period, you were playing all these shows, festivals, things. You said there's a two or three year window. Yeah. <laughs> was it everyone, every, was it, uh, did it start to get really competitive or what other things did you notice as that honeymoon period ended competitive, but you, you, um, I just felt like we were starting to, uh, we had trouble with the transition to like musically how we could evolve and, and, and garden Red had the same problem. It's like, you know, you can't repeat yourself. So you're trying to, and we, we tried to get more maybe electronic or something. And, and we started to work against our strengths. And this is, this is the thing I realized as a, an older person and it it came from i was reading an interview with mick jones and he was talking about big audio dynamite and he says you know the first couple of records we were great and the clash records are great and then as i as i got more and further and further into this like kind of like hip hoppy whatever i started to lose what i was good at and i feel like with with garden ready and radio four we we both and i was kind of the you know somewhat of a leader of, of both those bands you start to you're trying to grow and you don't know which way to grow. And maybe you go in a direction where you're like, Oh, this is exciting. People are doing this. I really like this. It doesn't mean it's what you're good at. It, it means you like it. Um, and I think we, I pulled myself in directions that I wasn't, there were records made like the first garden variety record and Gotham, the, the second radio four record where I felt like I was working at the, the, like the, my strengths were at their best. You know, I was like, this is exactly where it, it combined all the things that, mm-hmm. that we were good at. And then, you know, and, and the ones before it were a little, you know, juvenile or maybe like naive. And then the ones after were, were not, didn't quite have that magic. I, I, it's one thing I've learned is that it's really, really insane when bands put out like five really good records. I don't know how they do that because, most of the bands I love and most of the bands I've been in get a couple, you get yeah. a couple good ones. And then, uh, it becomes difficult. And I, I think a lot of the bands that you probably interview, most of them probably have a two record career, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, if we just talk about the bands we named today, most of them didn't make more than three albums. Yeah. You know? Jimmy world's still going. Yeah. They've gotten a bunch, but yeah, you're right. It depends on the, I mean, it's timing. It's and then they come back and make a record sometimes. Right, but the, I'm telling you, like just that the, moment, the, the initial, the, the initial, initial push. Run. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's usually it's usually short lived for for uh, whatever reasons. There's a lot, and I think you know, coming from another problem of coming from the world that Garden Variety was in was it financially becomes almost impossible to support yourself because you're you're literally supporting yourself. You yeah, know, you're not on a label that could do anything for you financially. Um, and there's only so much time you can sleep on someone's floor yeah, you ter- you someone help you 27 or 26 or whatever you are 25 and you say you know i kind of can't do this anymore and um radio four was uh started with with i said to them you know i'm going to do i will do whatever we can to to get more popular you know within reason i'm not going to make a fool of myself but if we can get on a major label or a big you know but we're that helps to, we're we can make to, more music yeah, we're gonna make videos we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna go on mtv we're gonna we're gonna do and we did all those things and, and you know we did talk you know the the conan o'brien and, and things like that that you know i think garden variety was that was not 
part of our world. We were a little bit like we did. We played some shows with the Boston's, which we got yelled at about. They they were Garden Variety fans. They said, "Oh, do you want to come?" Play Are you with serious? Us? Yeah, I didn't uh, know that. Who in the band was a Garden Variety Nate, fan? The guitar player. Who's, really? Who? If you ever talk to him, all he wants to talk about is like Mission to Burma. And really? And yeah, yeah. He's he's, a, he's become a really, really, <laughs> really successful A and R guy. He signed. Uh, I think the weekend is his. Ah, for for Interscope. Yeah, he's like really high up. He's always been like really kind of like a deep and and uh, tasteful and and really just nice guy. And he he took us out on a couple of shows, but we got yelled at about that. Like, what are you doing playing with that? Like, I'm just trying to play to people. <laughs> like, not really. It's a different audience. Really, yeah, we're not really doing anything. You know. Um, but it's that. I guess it's that constant, or maybe it's a different thing. But that you're damned if you do damn if you don't like i want to have more people know my band but the 10 people in the corner that want me to still be that yeah. one band is yeah. gonna yell exactly and how loud is that how loud is that right and i think in the case of some of the bands that we were friendly with that got bigger it w- they yelled pretty loud you know i don't know if um you know a lot of them had internal conflicts anyway so it's it's you know, take that. You have the internal conflicts, and then you have the pressure of being a sellout. And you just—I think people get to the point like, "What? What am I doing this for?" You know, yeah. It's just like everywhere I turn, there's there's an issue, and and you don't have it in the beginning. The community is like nice, and then and then you know, you know how that goes. It's yeah. just it's a familiar tale. So <laughs> you know, it's everybody. I think, and if you read any of the history books, this is of music. This is what happens with scenes. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're great, but they have there is a a there's time. a drawback and yeah. there's a t- yeah there's a window of time before it closes so the i mean the new york stuff is still going on but that honeymoon period when did you guys with radio 4 you know feel like oh god like every show has this many A&R people here or um this got too ridiculous or 2001 2002 were like you know, we went to South by Southwest in, in 2002 and like got signed. Like it was like a, you know, it was wow, that doesn't even happen anymore. Yeah, like it was like the real, like you get in the van, we went down there. We toured the way back with Ted, but we played like, you know, a showcase and, and at South by Southwest, our manager was like, you know, it's going to be label people there. And we got signed to City Slang, which is a European label that puts out like Arcade Fire now. And, you know, it's, it's like one of the big, uh, indie it's almost like the merge of got it. europe but at that time they were connected to emi so we basically got a deal in europe with with emi virgin through city slang and then emi called up you know whoever their affiliates were in america and said who wants to do the american and astroworks and that was astroworks so yeah we went south by southwest and got signed and um and we had other people into like we made we made the record gotham james murphy from lcd produced it so um he was starting he was just starting lcd there was just heat on new york and he did a really great job producing it. him and his producing partner tim goldsworthy who they're no longer together but they just they made a great charles put it out i remember calling charles i was like i'm not going to tell you the amount of money but i was like charles we need like x amount of dollars for this guy james murphy and tim goldsworthy producer. he's like what i'm not paying that and I was like, well, it's, you know, we, we just need, he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's not, it, you know, it's not a lot. I could swing it. You know, I was like, yeah. And if I told you the amount of money, it was, <laughs> um, and it was really funny. Cause that's what, that's what those labels were like. It was like, it was tough to come up with, you know, any, any amount of money to make a good sounding record. But you know what? We, we spent a little bit of money and, and it was the, this, the, the, this amount of money. Um, and we made a really good sounding record with those guys. And, people liked it you know it was like one of those things i was very committed to using 
James because I originally wanted Matt Sweeney from Chavez and uh, he was in a band Skunk that we were all into before that and I we asked him we said you know do you want to produce the Radio 4 record and he said well what are you trying to do I said, we, I said you know post punk kind of dan- more danceable and he said no get this guy James Murphy to produce it no and way we went over to James's uh, and it was our manager Mike Studo who owned Brownies that was coordinating this and Studo took us over to to meet James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy and they played us house jealous lovers and, and uh, we're like, Oh yeah, this is exactly what, you know, what we're looking to do. And we made that record and immediately we got, you know, we got the, the funny thing was Mike Studio was really hooked up with people. So he had a, he had the record, he owned brownies. He had the record early and he played it. I remember the first call he got was he played it for death cap. He played it for no way. Gibbard. Yeah. And Gibbard said, Oh, do they want to play with us? And that was, he was like the first person that heard it. And then, you know, he sent it to Domino and he sent it to Matador and everybody was like, we got a call from everybody. Wow. Was thinking, you know, um, that's a great feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I think we had written the best bunch of songs that we had. And I think that we were lucky enough to work with people who, you know, it's embracing the producer too. That's another thing. Our scene, the, that the uh, difference. Yeah. They were very like, don't mess with our music. You know, it's punk. We got to keep it. And the, the New York scene, everybody work with producers. And, and I think there's, I love it. You know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed working with them. I, we made a record after that with a guy, Jack Schooner, who's like, I liked it. I like that relationship. I, I, I wasn't so like, don't touch my music, you know, help me, like, help me. Yeah. I, this is where we're at. Can you get it? We kind of want to go here. We don't know exactly how to get there. Yeah. That's what, you know, I think the band said, um, and trust. Yeah. You have to trust their tastes, of course. But I think the bands that go down in the history books tend to have producers, <laughs> you know, even the, the Beatles and, yeah. you know, the Stones and the Clash and the, and the bands that, for, they all worked with producers, you know. I, I, I don't know where that went with that, some kind of like, no, we can do it on our own, you know. That's like, <laughs> it's it's going to sound it's like crap. Silly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Could you talk about brownies for a bit? Because that's I know, the greatest place ever. So, yeah. I just mean, that was you, I knew about it before I was in New York. And it was just like, well, that's where all my favorite bands play. Yeah. How did it get to that? What? What? I mean, Mike's venues. Good. Venues come and go. Love you because I think a lot of people out there that are listening have heard or seen a flyer with brownies on it. Yeah. Why? Because my, you know, Mike Studo is. Uh, he was the booker initially. Initially, it was this woman Karen. I can't remember her last name. She brought us to brownies. Mike was working there. Garn Garn Ready played there a lot, and um, we just loved it. We we were like, this place is awesome. We met Mike. We became really good friends with Mike, and uh, Mike eventually took over Brownies, and he was, you know, one of the most passionate people about music that I've ever met, and uh, he's a friend of everyone, and he cared so much, and he would book, um, he would put Garden Variety on great bills, and then when Garden Variety broke up, we made Radio Four made a demo or something, and we gave it to Mike. And he liked it. He was like, you know, I want to work with you guys. And, and then he was a catalyst in building a New York scene. And I don't think he gets enough respect or praise because uh, the books that have been written about the New York thing talk more about Mercury and Don Hills and stuff. But really? everyone played Brownies. Yeah. Everyone played Brownies. Brownies was great. It was like... I, First you know, time I saw Cursive was there. Yeah. They were part of that. The whole whatever we could. I, I don't know what to call that, that scene. You can see I'm struggling in the email. You don't need to say the word. It's fine. Everyone hates it. I don't, you know, it's like, I don't know what to say that. But, you know, we, the late remember, 90s. The late 90s, yeah. Mid, well, it's, it's, for us, it's early to mid. But we played there with Knapsack. We played there with Arches Loaf. We played there with, uh, 
you know, uh, bands that were on Merge, uh, Small 23, like all of, all those bands we played with at Brownies. And then with Radio 4, we played there with The Rapture, and we played there with Interpol, and we played there with The Walkman, and all the bands that you would you would think. And Mike Bridge, you know, he, he kind of kept it going and knew everybody in those communities and, yeah, knew the dance, you know, the LCD people, and, and just was kind of someone that was... Uh, and was putting the right bands together. Incredible. or put- yeah. And then, you know, at a certain point, he hired Eric. Uh, Who's that? Eric Speck. You know him? No. He owns the wine bar with Chris. Oh, okay. He was booking it with Mike. Chris Leo from yeah, Van Pelt. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> he, he was booking it with Mike, and he, was, he used to have a label called Ace Foo that... Um, yes. Yeah. So he was one of our crew, too, and... and uh, I haven't it's thought just, of Ace Foo in a while. I know. I, I mentioned in this conversation I had the other day, they came up. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was just it was just people that you knew forever that were kind of um, all came together in that place. And so he was connected, loved yeah. the music, and um, knew how to put stuff to, like knew how to put right bands together yeah. for those shows. I mean, he's like you know he was at my wedding. Like he's he, you don't often come across like a club owner that you become you know for, you know you usually meet him, get paid, have a cut drink, laugh or whatever, and and move on. But he was one of those people that became friends with the bands. Like he is still really good friends with you know ted leo and the hold steady and you know all the people that have come out like he still has a relationship because he, he just put that extra effort into it that i think makes other venues didn't yeah other venues don't they just get you know they get they're doing their job which is totally fine but he had something he had something more to offer so yeah it definitely for the when i was either i was here for cmj uh in the late 90s or in college or when i moved here it was like well if, the, if it was the brownie show it had an extra little yeah. thing to it yeah that's right he put together great bills he treated bands well they wanted to play there they wanted to come back and play there too it, it's like uh you know consequently brownie's closed probably because of his uh generosity and uh you know w- relationships i think you know when you become friends with everybody it makes it hard to be a businessman maybe you know so i, I don't know if that was i think he had tired on doing the live band thing and he wanted to switch it to a bar but i also think what what made him uh, such a great club owner is uh, not necessarily what makes you, you know, a, a good business greedy man. businessman. Yeah. You know, so, but you know, he had a long run and it, w- it was amazing. Best club. It's like I, I don't. Uh, I, there's no better. You know, unless you go into the next level of that size of the 150 to 200 person room. That that was the place we played there so many times. It's, like, <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I loved it. I went there all the time. Yeah, um, and then transitioning i mean radio four ending or like what other things were you thinking about when that was happening was there was it was it um let me say it another way from the ending of that band was it another moment for you to okay what am i going to do now how do i well i didn't want to do anything musically oh you didn't no i i was just like you know kind of been down that road i had my son and uh you know then a few years after i had a daughter it was just it was time to move into a new career i felt like so i started to do work in tv which is what i do now music for different television shows and and uh i ended up you know getting into that by accident i started doing some commercial work as a lot of people do and then i met a guy who who was a fan of radio four that was making a film and he was like, can you help me on this? And then he moved to a TV show. And I went and worked on that TV show, which was called Lights Out. It was on FX. It was a short-lived drama, full season, but about a boxer. But then I met all these interesting people there, you know, that were also, 
you know, a TV crew, like a writer's room and a production crew and stuff is a little bit like being in a band. Like you're kind of like, we're going to try and make something great and we're mm-hmm. all together. And, and, uh, I really like that. So I, I was lucky enough to kind of transition. I don't want to be in a band. I don't, you know, do I go see, uh, Ted Leo last week or do I go see LCD a month ago or, or whomever and get jealous that they're, yeah, of course. I, you know, Oh, that looks fun, you know, but I think, um, a lot of the things that you have to do to sustain a career like that are just very, very difficult and, and very, you know, relationships, sacrifices you have to make that I'm, I don't necessarily want to. And, um, I'm never really like the road. I'm not like a road where I was like, you know, one of those people that wants a tour all the time. I, I don't like it. So <laughs> I was always kind of grumpy on tour. Hindsight is fun, but I remember in in the moment, like oh, another trip, you know, another four weeks, another five. It wasn't wasn't something I loved. Yeah, and that's really the only way to make it now. It's like get out there and yeah, and play. But the physical act of playing, I miss tremendously. But the uh, that's funny. How many uh, punk rock folks are right for t- right for TV or movies? Yeah, it makes um, sense. Right? Yeah, but it's yeah. it's cool again. That same like, there's some punk rock kids. You know, yeah. making records. Oh, yeah, yeah. Josh from Shift, I know, does yeah, it in L.A. I came across him, yeah. Exactly. Um, Adam Rubenstein from Chamberlain and Split Lip. Yeah. Uh, he does the, he does the uh, Under the Influence yeah. party. Yeah. Which I did. A, we did the replacements one. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's quite a few people that have transitioned to that. It's, uh, that's not surprising because... I like that, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good transition. It's a good transition. Yeah, it's not always better than, you know, a lot of worse things. Um, I think because, you know, you're using your creative uh, energy and uh, you're, you know, you, I think we all grow tired of traveling, so you don't have to, you know, it's like a way of being creative, but you might get paid every week and you don't have to go away and stuff like that, so... Uh, I you know I work on the show now called Difficult People with Julie Klausner and, and Billy Eichner and um, it's an amazing show and uh, I'm I'm happy to be part of it. I worked on Marin for four years, which was Mark Marin's TV show. I worked on uh, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll with Dennis Leary. I've worked with Dennis Leary a lot. Like I like all the people I'm I'm with, and they're all uh, a lot of them are people I knew about what you know well before I started working with them, and I was always like these people are cool, you know. Um, so what would be your what's your job what's the what would if you told someone in a minute what what your job supervision is so music supervision i usually get like um but because i'm a musician so not picking music but performing as well picking and performing got it so both because i'm a musician i'll what what often happens with and in the case of marin sex drugs and rock and roll with uh you know and the you know difficult people is i'll get hired as supervisor can you find us a bunch of great music because you know you have friends and then i'll end up writing a few things um because there'll just be a need for it mm-hmm. you know, that, that's typically the way it goes like marin i ended up writing a theme song with uh well r- really rizzo wrote it but you know it's like i brought him in from garden variety and, and we created it together lights out i wrote the theme song for um and then i wrote select cues for the other shows it's just like i'll be the music supervisor and then i'll end up musically adding to the show somehow but a lot of music supervision i'll just be like reaching into the kind of like you know my friends and 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 looking at their catalogs and saying because because i was in bands that you know put out records and stuff my friends are you know they're all pretty qualified or good musicians and and uh I'll just try and put out stuff, put stuff. And you're able to help. I'm able to help them <laughs> and I'm able to help the show because it's like, it's good stuff that maybe isn't the first go to for everybody. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously you can't just hook up your friends because you have to play the music. You're, you have to 
get the right music for the scene and then you have to play it for the people that are um in charge the producers the creators they, they don't care who you're friends with they, they they want good music in their show but if you are drawing from a, a, a catalog of good music because you happen to know a lot of great people sometimes those two things connect you know and sometimes they don't sometimes you can't um you, your friends have done nothing that would be appropriate for this <laughs> for this, this scene but you know a lot of times uh there there's something in in the you know through my relationships that and and also it helps because it's like you know if there's a budget constriction or something like that you you have a relationship with the label you have a relationship with the musicians like hey could we do a little better here mm-hmm. we don't have a ton of money yeah don't worry about it roman it's fine get me next time you know you you're building someone told me that once that always you know always look back at, at what you've done and and, and use it uh, as part of what you're doing now not use it in a like you know just don't forget about your past like always always like kind of draw and go with go to that well you know and uh i think it, it's a good lesson like that all the years of making music and the, and the records and, and being on all these different record labels and meeting all these incredible people all those incredible people still want to you know be part of what what you're doing now and, and want to be part of television want to be part of the world as it exists now and and it's always good to go back and say you know hey you want to be part of this you want you know or I was part of, you know, I know those people. They would be great for this. Like, it's, it, I, I feel like in, at certain points in my life, I've cut off my past. Like, ah, that was what I did a long time. I'm not associated, and I'm, I don't do that anymore. That's, that's, there's no sense in that because it's all, I'm not embarrassed by any of it. You know, it's all, I'm proud of it all. So why not touch on it? You know? Washed up emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also printed volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com